Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Well, hello and welcome to episode three of the Alamayas Everton podcast. Another packed show for you ahead. Uh, we'll hear from Everton first team coach Duncan Ferguson on his relationship with the fans, his late former teammate Gary Speed, and he explains that orange jacket he wore when he first arrived at the club. I'll also be in conversation with former midfielder Tony Grant, who talks about his time at the club and a new coaching challenge as he heads off to Australia this summer. Well, that's all to come, but back in the here and now, it's been another busy week or so at Everton. A week which saw majority shareholder Farhad Mashiri increase his stake in the club, a whole host of transfer speculation and a new assistant manager in Lewis Boamorte. And to discuss all things and more, no doubt, I'm delighted to be joined by the Liverpool Echo sports editor, David Prentice, the Echo's Everton reporter, Adam Jones, and the one and only Gavin Buckland, or as I call him, C-Fax. Because <laughs> he knows everything. <laughs> the Gavner. The Gavner, <laughs> exactly. Um, listen, we're going to start off this week. There's been quite a bit going on at the club over the last few, uh, well, week and a half or so, um, because of, uh, you know... It's obviously close season, and we don't expect so much so much news in these early stages of the close season, do we? It seems to go a bit quiet in football. But one of the things that we saw was Farhad Mashiri upping his um, stake in the club to over seventy seven percent. What what's um, the significance to that, Dave? Do you think? To be honest, we were discussing this, you know, so at the time, and I don't see any great significance in it. In that he's a majority shareholder, who is now even more of a majority shareholder. <laughs> For me, the significance came in where the shares that he acquired actually came from, and uh, obviously, you know, the, the Grantchesters, or you know, so originally, you know, the Moores family, who actually, you know, so owned the club all those years ago. And I wouldn't say, you know, it lessens the links at all with the club, but I think was it eight percent of the you know shares they held in the football club. So, you know, whatever influence they had was nominal anyway, but, you know, it, it's, it's even less so now. So, to me, it just, Farhad Mashiri is an absolute, you know, sort of ruler of the football club, whatever he says goes. That was always the case anyway, but it just reinforces that even more now. Um, you know, it's a man who's making all the decisions at the football club, you know, for better or for worse, and this just, you know, sort of basically accentuates that. Unless the guys can tell me anything. Well, well, I mean, from what I know, um, and I think, as you know, I, I spoke with Lord Grantchester in yeah. the week, and, and and he sort of gave me a quote about about the family, and you know, because obviously, as you as you suggested there, Dave, it means a lot to them. I think absolutely. Um, uh, and I think I get the sense that this was something which was going to happen no matter what. Yeah. There's a time scale in place with all of these things, um, as the one was with John Woods, I think, and, and as there will be eventually uh, with Bill. Um, so, you know, it, it's a situation which is just ongoing, and I think it's a case of when, when Farhad Mashiri, you know, gets to, to own sort of pretty much all of the club. And I don't think it should be any shock or a surprise, but... We've seen again, didn't we, Adam? The uh, the fans are getting excited about mm. what might be the, uh, the yeah. ramifications. Of course, Usmanov's name come up again, oh, and yeah. I mean, it, it, we have to 
have a little bit of calm on this one, don't we? I think. Yeah, I think so. I think in the, the way I've been looking at it is it just reaffirms Mercedes, you know, belief in the project that's happening at the club right now. And I think in a lot of ways it shows that he's getting more confident at doing this because, you know, let's not forget when he first bought shares into Everton, this was the first time he'd been able to venture out and do this on his own. Like those Osmanov links came from their time at Arsenal together, you know, uh, this is the first time Mercedes has been able to do this by himself. And, uh, you know, he bought that initial 49.9% because he knew that he needed to learn how a football club like Everton was going to be structured, how uh, to progress it in the future. And I think stuff like this only shows how confident he is getting that, you know, you know things are in place. You know, he's put a lot of time and effort into Bramley Moore in particular now. And, you know, I, I think it does give Everton fans a lot of confidence, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be thinking about Osmanov or anything like that yet. No. Uh, and Gavin, I, I mean, you know, Dave mentioned about the, the, the Moore's family link and, you know, possibly going now, although I get the sense that um, Lord Grantchester will be involved, you know, in some yeah. way, you know, with the club, um, not not a board level or ownership level, but certainly um, will retain an interest in the club. Um, but... How important do you think it is to have the likes of Bill Kenwright alongside Mashiri in this period of transition? Absolutely vital. Um, I suppose for, for lots of reasons. Um, you, clubs are ongoing concerns, Andy. You can't just start afresh, can you, when you've got a new owner? You have to have some sort of route to the past and somebody who understands the, the history of the club, the, the area in which it's based. Um their eyesight of the fan base, whatever that, whatever that means. You know, you need somebody with that understanding and also that experience at board level. And I think it's absolutely vital. Lots, lots of clubs have got themselves into a hell of a lot of trouble by not retaining some somebody with that historical and local interest on on the board. Uh, you've just come in and just think that you know what well, we can run it ourselves, run a football club, but actually. It, it's, it's huge importance of, of, of Bill and Lord Grantchester as well. You know, who's links, you know, going back to the Moors family, it's 60 years now, isn't it? I think something like that. Um, absolutely vital. Um, I'm not sure whether people appreciate that as much as what they should, but absolutely. Absolutely endorse that. I mean, I've written that a few times. I, I think that, you know, sort of Bill Kenwright's influence on the football club is now more vital than it ever has been. Um, he waited a long, long time uh, before you know he accepted the offer of the man that he thought was correct for the football club to take the club forward, and that was Farhad Mashiri. And he got an awful lot of flack in the years building up to that uh, for not having sold earlier. Uh, to people that we don't know, you know, so how you know a, how prevalent those people were, but equally what they would have done with the football club. I think most people have accepted that yes, Farhad Mashiri was the right man to come in, and everyone's delighted with what he's done in terms of the investments, in terms of the Bramley Moor project. On the rare occasions that he has broken ranks, if you like, and, uh, you know, so gone out on his own, you could argue he hasn't got things right. I mean, I'm talking about the Sam Allardyce appointments here, which is an open secret that, you know, not everybody on the board uh, agreed with the appointments of that. But, you know, Farhad uh, panicked at the time. He thought his Premier League project was in danger, which is why he decided to bring him in. And I think subsequently he'd, he'd say that, you know, so maybe he should have showed a little bit more faith uh, than he did at the time. So, you know, I think Bill Kenwright's experience in the football club and just the, the way in which, you know, so Everton Football Club ought to be doing things is very, very important still. I mean, Farhad will, you know, do things his own way. He has been doing things his own way. But you need a sounding board to bounce some of these ideas off. And I don't think there's anybody better than him to bounce them off. That might, you know, so 
be a viewpoint that an awful lot of uh, Blues fans out there don't agree with. But you know, so I, I stand by it quite strongly. It feels as if there's been a turn back in that in that sense. Um, as you say, they may, it might have wandered a little bit. Yeah, you yeah. know, the, the belief of how you go forward. But it seems as if there's been a turn back and a, and a, and a, and a grasp of that that solidness that we're talking about. I hope so, because you know. So the the only thing that you know, so Bill Kenwright. Uh, has done wrong, if you like, you know, so during his tenure in the football club is not being wealthy enough to put the investments in there that most people wanted to see happening. And uh, he refused to, you know, listen to, or he listened to everybody, but he refused to, you know, sort of sell out to, you know, so people who were hovering around, you know, the, the periphery of the football club, people who seemed a bit shady, you know, so to begin with. And he waited basically until he found somebody that he was absolutely comfortable with. And uh, I think that that patience and that, and that willingness to wait, you know, was for the good of Everton in the long run. And I think it'll probably be a long, long time before the decisions he made are actually given the credit that they deserve. Uh, you know, so it could be, you know, so sometime in, in the far distant future. Uh, but, you know, so I think his patience and his tolerance uh, has been very, very good for Everton Football Club. And Gavin, we've seen, haven't we, you know, um, teams like... Aston Villa, teams like Leeds, you know, these teams who've had new ownerships, yeah. and, you know, and, and and it's not gone well. And, and, and a lot of them aren't sort of bad ownerships as such, but it just hasn't worked. So the, the job of finding the right person was a difficult one. And, and a lengthy one. Uh, bear in mind that the first challenge for them was probably uh, doing something over Goodison, wasn't it? So it wasn't if you were coming into it at Eddie Made Stadium as well. Uh, and yeah, it, 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 I can... I can only echo, pardon the pun, Preno's thoughts on this, is that it was it was worth it getting to far as. I mean, the, the being the odd like sort of thing, you think it's gone a little bit off, you know, off record or whatever. Um, but I've, I've really liked the effect that he's had on the club since he's come in. There's a lot of work still to be done off the pitch. Um, but in terms of seeming to be like a nice fit for Everton and seems like a decent fella, uh, I've I've been you know really happy what he's what he's done so far. It's well worth the wait. And as you say, the, 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 there's lots of reasons why clubs have gone wrong. Not just because they've not retained some local interest. There's lots of other reasons why. You know, um, people not necessarily having the money. They said they did as well as one of them. <laughs> where I think Farhad's uh, wealth is uh, for all to see, isn't it? Really, yeah, we've seen. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and. Um, it was well worth the wait, but in many respects, the hard work is is still to to happen. Um, but I agree. I think if it works out well, we may look at back at this sort of two or three year period and saying there's a bit of pain there, but it might be worth it in the in the long term, you know. But I think there's there's still a hell of a lot of work to be done off the pitch. I'm not pardoning the pun, by the way, but uh, Adam, <laughs> you, I think it's safe to say you're the youngest of us all here today. Uh, Just by some distance, by a margin. Yeah. yeah. Um, I asked the question of the other night, you know, I remember when I was a, when I was younger, when I was a lot younger, th- this sort of thing just wasn't any interest to me, but it mm. is nowadays. What is it about finance of football clubs and, you know, that interests the, the young supporter now? I think for me, uh, it was just because, you know, I've grown up watching Everton, you know, when I first watched Everton, it was Walter Smith and relegation battles sort of thing. So seeing other teams, you know, some as close as just across Stanley Park, you know, other teams going out and spending massive money and winning loads of things. Like, it, it was just a pipe dream to, like, a little young Everton fan like me. So, you know, when it, you know, finally progressed through, like, I remember when uh, Everton paid 28 million to bring in Romelu Lukaku and that just, 
that blew my mind. Like yeah, I, could, yeah. I could never imagine Everton spending that much money. And, you know, it's, it's always been, it's always just been penny pinching. It's, it seemed yeah. for Everton. So to finally have, you know, this sort of investment from, you know, Mishiri, who, as, as you've said, does seem like a really nice fella. He seems to be really buying into what is the Everton way, you know, like, to finally see Everton, you know, not really worrying about the money at all at all anymore, you know, being able to go out and spend forty five million to bring in Gilfie Sigurdsson or forty mil to bring in Richarlison, you know, they're, they're the kind of signings that, you know, I, I could never have dreamed of when I was just a little kid. So to finally see Everton do that and, you know, to see Mashiri, you know, in just looking like he wants to invest even more money, you know, building a new stadium at the docks, you know. Yeah, these are all things that I just never thought was going to happen for Everton. Exciting so it's, it's almost come full circle as well because that is the way that Everton Football Club was perceived mm. uh, for a long, long yeah. time. You know, so certainly in the 60s in the and 60s, the 70s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, spending record sums of money on footballers, building, you know, Goodison Park was a state-of-the-art stadium. And you know, World Cup semi-final mm. venue. Uh, Belfield, you know, so the best football training complex you know, so in the country. And, you know, hopefully we're having a return towards those uh, times now. But, you know, obviously the financial situation in football has spiralled ridiculously out of control since then. Uh, you know, back then it was it was millions of pounds. Now it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. But, you know, fingers crossed we're heading in that direction with Everton Football Club. OK, well, let's um, let's leave Farhad Mashiri for now. Uh, Mashiri for now. And uh, let's look ahead um, to the appointment or look back at the appointment of Lewis Boamorti. Because anyone really look at me in the eye and say, oh, yeah, I thought that one would happen. Well, nope. stra- strangely enough, <laughs> oh, like, <laughs> spe- speaking, to, speaking to Marco a few months ago, hmm. uh, when it was like me and Radio Merseyside speaking to him, uh, we like brought up Bo Morte. I can't remember. It was the lad from, Radio- well, the lad from Radio Merseyside brought it up. Like, really? I, 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 I think Bo Morte had been in the news for something he was doing, maybe at Maccabi Haifa or something yeah, like right, that. Yeah. And... Uh, he just brought him up and he said, oh, you worked together at, uh, at Sport in Lisbon, didn't you? And like Marco went off on one for about two or three minutes on how much, you know, he, really? he, lo- he loved it. So uh, like I would have been tre- intrigued to know whether he knew like at that, his, point. His, at that mm-hmm. point that his assistant was going to be leaving and whether he'd already picked him out or not. But yeah, there was like, there was obviously signs there that he he definitely enjoyed uh, Belmorte's company, so... Yeah, let's let's hope it. Uh, and out. he certainly had a history with Everton, didn't he? I remember a few times of There were times when it got a bit, uh, you know, crossed the line a couple of times. I think, didn't it? Yeah, there was, I think Fulham, one of them, certainly in the early two thousands. It was one of them games. Always a little bit of bit feisty. Yeah, what I was, was surprised yeah. about him was um, doing something completely different last week. That he made two hundred ninety six Premier League appearances, which I was amazed. Mm. That I was, it was always one of these people that you just thought was on the periphery. Yeah, but he, um, Arsenal, West Ham. Wasn't yeah, it, was it? Um, so, so he's around a long time. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, whether people have a long, long memories, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not certain. But it, the, the, the relationship between a manager and a coach, even in or your your first team coach, whatever you call it, your assistant, is, is crucial and always has been, hasn't it? Even in these days of having like sports scientists and stat people in the background mate you know giving you all this data and stuff it, it's still I think one of the key relationships of the club and it has yeah. to be right um, for the you know for the coaching team and the and the football team to work in harmony and that's why I was um, I was worried when Silver's previous assistant uh, went 
because he'd been like there long term and, and to lose him after the year when he's still acclimatising to heaven as it were I thought was a big blow um, for me on face value uh, at least he's worked with Bone Morte before and, and, and Bone Morte knows the Premier League a bit some years ago but he's familiar with it isn't he um, so that sort of as far as my concerns a little bit but um, I think it, it, it's it's still uh, not not a worry, but it's still something that I think is perhaps a little bit unnecessary, if you know what I mean. I think um, I would like to have some continuity going into next season. Is Marco taking a risk, Dave, do you think? I don't think he is, because, you know, he's very comfortable and very familiar with Boamorte, and the fact that Boamorte knows English football as well as he does, I think is what reassures me a little. It's all to do with the chemistry between uh, the manager and his assistant. That's the most important thing. Um, you know, a different idea, you know, sort of set coming in, you know, which he can bounce off him. Um, got no real concerns with it, to be honest. I mean, I understand why you're yeah. a bit concerned, Gavin, because of his, you know, the, the long-term nature of his relationship with, you know, the assistants who's departed. But clearly, Bo Morty is somebody he knows, somebody he's worked with. It's not like, you know, the David Moyes situation where we talked about last week and Alan Irvin came in and, you know, he was surprised to get the call because, you know, yeah. he didn't know that David Moyes was even aware of his existence. Mm. Uh, but he just, you know, appreciated his work as a coach. At least Marco Silva knows an awful lot about Lewis Boamorte. Um So, no, I'm not I'm not too concerned about that. I think, you know, as long as the manager is comfortable and the manager, you know, sort of wants to work with them, you know, happy days. I remember um, going down to, I mentioned it on Twitter the other night, I remember going down to Portugal to do an interview with Abel Xavier. And uh, and we, we Abel was late, which should come as no surprise. And um, we went down to the, the marina to sort of sit around and we went into, uh, we we're going to try and do an interview with Figo, who had, a, who had a bar there in the corner by the marina. So we went in and the guy there who looked after Figo said, oh yeah, he'll come down. Anyway, he didn't turn up. So he said, but as we were walking out, he said, but... Uh, Lewis Beaumorte is upstairs if you want to do an interview with him. So, you know, it was a bit random, you know, things to, to say, you know. So I said, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll go, you know, in for a penny. And, and I had this impression of Lewis Beaumorte at the time because of what had gone on and, you know. And uh, I have to say, when I went up to interview him, he was so intelligent and so... Yeah polite yeah. and, and just a nice guy, you know, and you think, well, yeah, okay, you know. You're waiting you know. for little firecrackers to come yeah, out. Yeah, you're waiting for this, like, <laughs> yeah. this, this thing, yeah. you know. And then um, what was funny about that trip was uh, we eventually, the next morning, Abel Xavier, we went to meet him in the hotel and uh, my cameraman said, I will never forget it, my cameraman said to me, do you think, will you ne will you recognise him? You know, I said, oh, <laughs> yeah, I'll recognise him, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, a big Ferrari, red Ferrari pulled up outside the hotel and in came, um, Abel with what could only be described as an orange mankini and flip-flops on, you know. And he said, oh, my cameraman said, yeah, well, I see what you mean by it. But, you know, I was talking about his uh, Papa Smith hair, you know what I mean? You know, I wasn't expecting an orange mankini. But anyway, that's another story. But, um, but no, I mean, we'll see how it goes, I guess. And, and you know, we'll, we'll see we'll see where it goes with as far as the, the assistant manager. How important is, is an assistant manager, you think, these days? I mean, because... You know, it's not long into his his tenure at, at Goodison. It isn't, and a lot of managers you know, are double acts. You know, so even if the assistant manager is someone that doesn't really have a profile, doesn't court publicity. You know, our most successful ever manager, Colin Harvey, played a huge you know sort yeah. of role behind the scenes. And Mick Heaton, for that matter, for that matter, yeah. you know, neither of them got much publicity at the time, but they're very very important. Uh, you know, Archie, sorry. 
Abolik Xavier's manager, uh, Walter Smith. Um, funny enough, when you're talking about him, then reminded that he actually came up to us at Belfield once and wanted to lead a delegation of players mm. um, to support the manager. It was a vote of confidence in the manager from yeah, the players I think I remember when he was that, under yeah. pressure. Yeah, and you can imagine Walter's, you know, so yeah, yeah. I told him about that. But, you know, so Archie Knox again was very, very important to him. So, you know, a number two that you can trust and you can rely on is very, very important. Mm. So you, you can't underestimate, you know, sort of the value and the influence that they have. You know, the manager makes the decisions, yeah. Mark. Of silver is you know where the, where the book stops, but you know a number two or a coaching staff that you can rely on is very very important. Yeah, I mean, I don't don't want to downplay it because the, the the other the upside of it is that sometimes you can work with somebody too long and somebody coming in who's new with some fresh ideas, fresh view on things, especially somebody who's been in the Premier League before. As I say, can can be beneficial. So it's not all a you know bad news story for me. It's just it's just something that I feel is a little bit of a diversion that perhaps we didn't need at this stage of uh, this stage of the you know the pre-season. I think it's just good to have a second opinion on things, yeah. isn't it? Like, I mean, the job of a Premier League manager in the modern day now has just got so much pressure around it. Like if you were doing if you were doing that by yourself, then it just caused so much stress. Like it's so it must be so much easier to have somebody that you know and who you can trust and who you've worked with before just to just to bounce off, you know, even the mm. simplest like training ground routines. So, and we're yeah. going to be hearing from Duncan Ferguson a little bit later on in, in the podcast. But is it important that we keep that uh, Everton link and that you know that maintain the Everton sort of feel around the place as well? I think it's it's got to be crucial, really, hasn't it? Because you know we all know what Duncan Ferguson's all about, and you know he's going to have Everton's best interests to heart all the time. I'm not saying that anyone else wouldn't, mm. but you know. Duncan Ferguson just knows what it takes to be an Everton player, and I'd, I'd like, I'd particularly love to see Dunk working with Dominic Calvert Lewin. I think they're already working together loads, and it's you know it's going to be great to see you know how he can develop in particular. But yeah, I think it's I think it's absolutely crucial. It's funny actually talking about Duncan there because I think back in his playing days, no one for a second would ever think that he would have become an Everton coach. <laughs> Remember no. Joe Royal telling me about uh, when he tried to sit down with him and Paul Rydell and show him was it videos of Casiraghi and a couple of other Italian strikers. Bob Latchford, he was showing him getting in front of defenders and he wanted to try and, you know, sort of impress, you know, that skill onto these two. And he says, Duncan just switched off. And was just like, you know, sort of daydreaming. <laughs> and he said, oh, let's forget about it. You know, so clearly, you know, so you, know, you need to be elsewhere. But there were little seeds of it. I remember a couple of the players and telling me about an incident when uh, Daniel Amakachi had not long signed and uh, Duncan had almost like taken him under his wing. Remember, he was the only one that went out to Tunisia for his wedding. And um, he was on the training ground and whatever Daniel was doing, he wasn't, you know, sort of doing it correctly to Duncan's liking. And it was, Daniel, Daniel, I won't do the Scottish accent, I can't even try and do it. You know, so, but, you know, Certainly not Duncan's. No, no. He says, Daniel, Daniel, don't do this, do this, watch me. I'll show you how to be a three million footballer, not a top and safety footballer like you're looking like right now. And all the other players were like, whoa, how can you say this to yeah, our new yeah. signing? But, you know, he did because he wanted him to improve. So maybe there were little signs of him. You know, and that's what you want, isn't it, in a dressing room? You want yeah, people who will say, you know, there were some sort of allegations from the fans last year. Allegations is probably not the right word, <laughs> but some suggestion from the fans last year. You know that that there wasn't enough of those players who would stand up and and t- talk to people and and tell people how it was. You know, you know. Probably, probably right. I mean, football dressing rooms now are so difficult to manage because players have so much power. Mm. You know, the fact that they earn so much money, the fact that they can get moved so easily now. You know. Um, uh, I think they do hold an awful lot of the aces and you probably don't have those confrontational moments in dressing rooms as much as maybe we used to and successful se- you know, teams seem to have. I mean, you know, Peter Reid talking about, you know, having fist fights all the time in dressing yeah. rooms. I'm not su- suggesting that, you know, that <laughs> no. is the way forward. <laughs> no. But, you know, so you do need to have 
um, you know, clear thinking and, you know, cards on tables. You know, you need to be told if you're not doing the job, you know, so properly. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. But I think now it's it's the money, as Prano said, but it, it, like the rest of society, dressing rooms are a diverse, yeah. of a diverse yeah. nature, aren't these people yeah. from different backgrounds, people who don't mix as much socially as what they used to yeah. years ago for lots of different reasons. And I think that's where that came from years ago. They were your friends, weren't they, in the dressing room? A lot of them, you go out socially together as a group. Mm. And that, that meant that you were able to challenge, I think, a lot more because you, you knew people better. Like in this, and Martin Keogh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes it <laughs> come back fire spectacularly. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure now whether A, people have got the character and B, I've got the, the sort of confidence in communicating. Uh, that type of stuff that plan I was so but, but I think also people as you say cultures changed uh, you know I can remember a coach at Everton naming no names who used to throw metal uh, mop buckets at players you know and, and that, that's true you know yeah. it actually happened and you think how could you I mean it should never have happened, but it did. And you think, how can that even happen today? It could never happen today. Imagine, imagine so a player you, missing a game from having... <laughs> because of metal mock yeah. you know. And well, could related to David Beckham got the, uh, the cut over his eye. Yeah. 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 And, and you, you can't even imagine in today's game now that, that yeah. can happen. You know, no, no. Uh, that's that's the money, though, isn't it? As well, that and that, that's where the power is. It's, it's just the diverse nature of, of dressing rooms, isn't it? I think mm. who was it? Was the was it Alan Perrin who came when we came in the ports with manager? And he said that his first time he walked in, there was like 11 players, 10 different languages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, he said, well, I'm supposed to build camaraderie and team spirit and like that sort of atmosphere when I've got like, you know, 10 different languages across yeah. me, me starting 11. Mm. And, and I think that is so much uh, a factor. And I do think, you know, don't sound like an old fogey, though I am, is, is this thing, I don't think society breeds that type of personality anymore. No. No. I don't think football breeds it. Uh, for lots of different reasons. And I think that makes the manager's job and the system manager's job a hell of a lot harder than what it was maybe 30 years ago. Okay, well, let's let's move on to the uh, the subject that we all love to talk about, and that's transfers. We're in we're in the madness of summer, aren't we? And I think, Gav, we were going to talk a little bit later about some of the best summers, <laughs> and you might remember a couple, Dave, you know, some of the best summers and incidents that we've had. Yeah. I, I, I remember the Muller one, which that sticks out to me, even though I think that was around about September, I think, when it happened. But, uh, but we'll talk about that afterwards. But one thing I, w- I want to address, Gomez is obviously talked about on a daily basis by Everton fans, and... Um, and, and we read today, as we as we record this, you know that a, a Portuguese journalist suggesting that Everton are not going to chase him as maybe a lot of the Everton fans might want them to. And I mean, can you see any truth in that at all? No, I think he's over-egging the pudding there. I think he said. <laughs> I, think, I think the phrase was Everton aren't desperate to sign. Yeah. Mm. Well, no, of course they're not desperate. You know, they want to actually forge a good deal, you know, yeah. so for both the football club and the player, but they want him, you know, so Marco Silva made that absolutely clear at the end of last season, where he cited both him and Kurt Zuma as being priorities this summer. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, not desperation, but they want they want both players and they want yeah. them badly. So, yeah. no, I think the Portuguese journalist is just, you know, maybe whether it's been lost in translation or, you know, so maybe he's not quite as close to the story as he thinks mm. he is. Uh, but I wouldn't be too concerned by that. I think it just went a bit viral, didn't it? Because people people have noticed on social media are getting a bit edgy yeah. about the amount of time this deal's taken. But at the end of the day, Barcelona are not the easiest team to negotiate with, as we found out with Yeni Mina last season. And if we're honest, there's still loads and loads of time to get this done before pre-season starts. We're expecting the squad back on the 1st of July. 
Still three weeks to go. And if you're Barcelona, you must look and think, okay, you've got this asset who's done well, you know, by all accounts from they'll be looking over and thinking he's done well. Um, you know, let's see if we can get the best deal for him. Mm. You know, no matter who that is. It's like and every club's entitled to do that, aren't they? You know, we do it as a talent club. My my view on Gomez is, is well founded. I, I could take a leave and to be honest with you. Mm. I yeah. Uh, do like him as a player, but in terms of our midfield shape, if we play with a whole midfielder, I'm not sure that he'd be our ideal player for us. I'd like somebody who could hurt mm. the opponents in the opposition box, which is something that I think, which maybe the way he's had to play is he's not really showing that enough for me this C- season. Could he add, could he add though the, the the sort of finesse the you know the pass the you know and and have someone like I think because I think we're all agreed that we probably miss. You know, do, do I call it a reedy character? You know, or someone who's going to be a leader in the middle of the park? Mm. You know, does he add the finesse? I, I think he does. Obviously, he does. But he shows on the wrong parts of the pitch for me. It's all right doing a nice little hundred and eighty degree turn on the yeah. halfway line and playing it to your full back and stuff. And if you're the opposing manager, that's what you'd want, wouldn't you? Really? But it, it's it, it's hurting people inside the box, and he's not done enough of that for me this season. He scored that great goal against Wolves, Wolves. and. Mm. In the derby where he got in the six-yard box, but for a play of his ability, um, I, I expect a little bit more. To be honest with you, further up the pitch, um, that's the role. Is which he's been employed, though, isn't it? Like he's been a six or an eight. That, rather that's than what I mean. That's I, I, hard to see, but it's hard to see him as an eight with playing further forward, and, and we need a holding midfielder to do that. Uh, I'm not saying he's not good enough. I just don't, if you, I, but I don't think I want to see him playing the same role as last season. Um, he's a, he's. A, He's a three-goal season, Mertens, isn't he, Gomez? And I think um, I'd want a little bit more from that. If, if, if midfield feels a play in that role, I'd want to see more goals because that was our problem last year. Mm-hmm. Apart from Six and Richarlison, we didn't get enough goals off the rest of the team. Yeah. And I'd be looking for somebody like Gomez to, to score seven or eight a season, not one. Is Zuma more important uh, to I the think, team? I think I, I personally think so, yeah. I think Zuma... He offers something that no other centre-back at the club necessarily does. You know, he's I think he's got it all. You know, he's a really good age. He's strong, he's quick, and he's really good at bringing the ball out from the back. And I think that's that's really key because, you know, we all know that Silva loves to play it out from the back as much as possible. And if it was left down to, say, the likes of Michael Keane and Yeni Mina, as it, as it stands, is the starting centre-back partnership, I'm not sure I'd be as confident with them bringing the ball out from the back as I would with Zuma. And I think, you know, it's it's obviously going to be a lot harder to deal with Chelsea now that they've got this yeah. transfer ban over their heads. But, you know, I think if there's any possibility that a deal can be done, then I'd love to see Everton go for it because I think he could be crucial. Well- Sorry, Dave, go on. No, we've had this discussion before, and I mean, I, I take the opposite tack on yeah. that because, you know, I like Zuma a lot, but I just think that, you know, centre-backs, they're not easy to find, but I think you can get good quality centre-backs, you know, for a reasonable price. Whereas I'm just a huge Gomez fan. Um, I just love his positivity. You know, OK, he might not be creating goals or scoring yeah. goals in that role he plays, but every pass is a forward pass. Every pass is, you know, so is precise. Um, and he started the season late. You know, he was, you know, was, was it like mid-September, early October before we actually started seeing him playing regularly. Uh, and I, I was just thrilled by what I saw. Uh, you know, for that, if that's a debut season in English football, I think he can only get better. And I think those type of midfielders are harder to identify than maybe good quality centre-halves, yeah. so, which is why I take that tack on him rather than Zuma. I just compare him to Arteta, mm-hmm. who would think offered a little bit more than what, what I'm talking about in terms of being able to aid the opposition. Yeah, in, in the penalty area, that's the player I would 
I would I would compare him against, and that was the type of role I like to see him playing. I think you want um, more about his size as well, don't you? You know, because he's a big player, yeah. isn't he? He's a big lad, and mm. you wonder whether he can impose himself a bit he more. Could do it without putting himself about some of the. Uh, yeah, 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 true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But but I mean, as a sort of the stature of him, you know, you you sometimes I felt you didn't really see him in games, you know, and and he sort of go missing for a while. It's maybe games. not what he's been used to throughout his career, though, is it? Like no. presumably, you know, growing up in Portugal and then moving over yeah. to Spain. He, yeah. he try and detract from his size yeah. a little bit. He, yeah. You know, he needs to be learn to be a little bit more it almost intricate. Became a dist- you know a bit of a a, a bad thing. For exactly. Him, yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. maybe relearning how to use yeah. his stature a little bit it will stand him in good stead. Definitely. How important? I mean, we talk about names, and we've been linked with I don't know how many on a daily on a daily <laughs> basis. But how important is it that we bring somebody in sooner rather than later? Do you think, or does it does it not matter that? Yeah, I don't think it matters at all. To be perfectly honest, as long as they're in for preseason. I mean, the preseason period is, is very very important, and you want your players on board then, so that they a, you can get the necessary levels of fitness into the bodies, but equally you can start to listen, you know, learn the uh, the club's philosophies, the way they want to play, what the manager wants from them. That's the crucial thing. So, you know, there's three weeks between now and then. And your players have holidays, you know. So, you know, we've only just had an international tournament end. So, you know, so players who've been involved are not going to be disappearing for the next fortnight. So very, very difficult to actually negotiate with footballers while they're abroad. Although that has been done. As we mentioned, Jordan Pickford was actually signed while he was on a training camp with England. So, no, I've got no real concerns just yet. Uh, You can understand why supporters get agitated. We look at our figures here and we just put the word transfer, you know, in a headline. And the story goes berserk. You know, there's just an absolute craving for any kind of uh, transfer, you know, knowledge or tidbits out there. So I'm, I'm personally quite relaxed about it for now. Ask me that in three weeks' time, and if no one's being signed, I might start getting that bit agitated as well. You should call it the Royal Blue Transfer Podcast then, so maybe early. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think the other thing to throw in here is wages, isn't it? At a time, when, at a period yeah. when we've got to reduce our wage bill, yeah. no point bringing four players in at the start of June and paying the wages for six weeks, yeah. which just is a hell of a lot of wages yeah. to sit, sit away yeah. on holiday, yeah. and I think yeah. that will also come into the thinking, I would, I would imagine, because to sign somebody and pay them a month's wage in the Premier League now, it's a hell of a lot of money, and and if as you say, if they're sitting on the beach for that period, you, you, it, it's it's a waste of time. So I think that'll be another factor. To, to but consider. fans love to say about Everton, don't they? You know, uh, why do we always take so long? To, and I think if you look at it properly and you look at it without your blue glasses on, you see that actually we're pretty much the same as every other club. Mm. But but that demand to get somebody in, you know, is you know as I say, is it is it important? Is it is it not important, Adam? Do you think? I think what's sticking in the minds of some supporters right now is that we've saw we saw like the downside of it last season you know we brought in Bernard very late and we didn't really see him get up to speed I'd argue until February March sort of time mm. uh, didn't bring in Gomez and Mina until deadline day and we had to wait until October and November respectively to see them finally introduced into the side uh, Zuma was a bit quicker getting getting into the side but it still took like a good couple of weeks before he was like up to speed so I think, as Preno says, it's. It, I think it's crucial to get players in for the start of pre-season, and I think fitness is probably the main, the main factor behind that. But you know, up, up until then, I think I'm I'm fine with it <laughs> for now. For now, yeah, yeah for, now. for now. So I mean, obviously, we we're talking about who and what and why. I mean, out of the names we've seen, what what are we looking at the most possible or probably? Do you think? Well, I don't think we've seen anything uh, concrete yet. I mean, obviously the news this week that John Joe Kenny is joining Schalke on a season-long loan highlights the fact that a right-back is a priority. Mm. 
Seamus Coleman, you know, is currently the only right back at the club if you discount Kuko Martina, which, which we are doing. Yes. Um, no. So, so, no, I quite like Kuko. I mean, I've got nothing against the yeah. guy. I thought he did a you know, stable enough job out of position, but no, come on, that's, that's not the way forward, is it? You know, no, so bringing Kuko Martina back. So clearly a right back uh, is a priority. And if we can identify somebody of the quality, you know, of Lucas Dean on the opposite, you know, flank, well, because... Mm. You know, everybody thought that well, we were fine with Leighton Baines last year and then we got a significant upgrade. So people are saying the same again about Seamus Coleman. You know, there's been a few suggestions that maybe the time is right for him to be, you know, sort of pressured more, you know, sort of pushed more. Mm. So that'll be a priority. And then, you know, we know they're looking for somebody across the front, the forward line, not necessarily an out-and-out centre-forward stroke goal scorer, but somebody else that can play, you know, sort of across that line, provided Gomez and Zuma are signed. Because obviously if they're not signed, that then means that those two positions also become... Uh, importance and suddenly you get like half a team having to be, you know, so sides rather than just one or two individuals. Mm. Do you expect much, Gavin? Do you, do you expect to see him, you know, a lot of signings this summer? Yeah, uh, I expect to see a lot of players getting, you know, the heave either on permanently or on loan. I think that's vital for the wage bill. I think that's what Fahad yeah. Mishiri would like. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, for us to sign players, we need to do that, don't we? So it's it's a double edged sword. I don't think we, we can't go out and buy players, can we, without getting rid of a hell of a lot of people off the wage bill or, and with transfer fees as well. So um, I think the two will be interlinked, perhaps. You know, the more we get rid of, maybe the more we can bring in. Uh, but I, I expect to I expect to see, you know, three or four, of which two may be players who were there last season. But I certainly think we need... Definitely need somebody in midfield. I think I'd argue even above Gomez as well. And I, I still think we need a, need a striker. Um, yeah. And Adam, we, we, we've seen this week uh, Ashley Williams uh, <laughs> leave the club. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what anyone else thinks, but I just felt they got the stick he got. You know, on social media was over the top. You know, I, yeah. I, I, you know. I, I don't know. Do, do, what's the I, thoughts? I, I, I see it both ways because I think his first season was pretty solid. Like, I thought it was a pretty decent first campaign, to be honest, at Everton, and then. Everyone suffered in that 17-18 season, but on the flip side, I don't think Williams helped himself, especially that sending off against Burnley. Mm. Like he's he's really not helped himself there, and you know that ended up being his last action in an Everton shirt, didn't it? So I think that that has stuck in the mind a little bit. So you know he was a victim of circumstance in some ways, but. You know, he didn't, he didn't help himself at the same time. I think it's time. a bit unfair to say he's the worst player in Everton history. Oh, God, that's, I, I, that's you know, ridiculous. I did, I, did, I did a little pop back at people on Twitter last week who were suggesting that, because that is also nonsense. We've seen some dreadful yeah, defenders at Everton. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so he's by far from the worst. Um, totally endorse what Adam said there. His first season was solid. He scored some, you know, high-profile goals. Well, that Arsenal oh, that's right one, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. he, he did yeah. okay. Uh, but, you know, he cost a fair sum of money for a defender of that age. So I think we're expecting a bit more. But he almost like aged overnight. It's mm. almost like in the course mm. of that pre, you know, that summer. I don't know whether the, the club started playing in a slightly different fashion, but it's almost like he appreciated that he didn't have the pace that he might have had previously. And he started defending deeper and deeper. And the one that really brought it home to me was the home defeat by Burnley. You know, so mm. where, you know, he was effectively in this in the six yard box, uh, you know, so sucking Burnley onto us that the home game that was that season. Um, and you just saw then there was a player who didn't quite have, you know, sort of the requisite athleticism anymore, mm. uh, you know, so to keep it going. So, Disappointed the flack he got, you know, but the well paid, you know, so to accept that kind of pressure. He had a decent first season, a very, very poor second season. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite 
shrugged my shoulders. You know, so I've seen far worse than him, trust me. Yeah. Um, Gavin, we've got to that point now where we're going to look at, uh, you know, get our little anecdotes about oh, the right, summer. Yeah. Which was it? Which was the most incredible summer? It can be any incident. It doesn't the, have to be the, a player the one. The one I look back on now, summer, and it, in, in many respects, we still bear the weight of its consequences as how it going in 87. Mm. I just think... I was yeah. in Menorca yeah, holiday yeah, when that yeah, happened yeah, and yeah. it absolutely ruined my holiday. Yeah. yeah. I... Um, no, where I was going, I was going to see you too, Wembley. <laughs> <laughs> no, you always remember that like JFK yeah. moment, you know. Yeah, where were you when I was going? It's quite funny, actually. Yeah. I had to, uh, I had to, uh, don't remember, it's one of the newspapers used to give like, uh, like, Marks out of ten, and at the end of the season, produced a big magazine, you know, giving big stato analysis of like, yeah. you know, they had an article, two page article, Kendall's Kingdom, how, how, you know, Evan of like, for years, people after yeah. the yeah. Liverpool DNA of building yeah. a kingdom and getting that continuity and stuff. And this is now Evan and now the new Liverpool and all that. <laughs> the newspaper, the newspaper said, Kendall goes, you know, and I remember like having the two things in my lap, you know, on the coach. And um, I, I couldn't believe it. However, uh, at the time, people were quite and uh, quite comfortable on the basis that it was all Colin Harvey. Then, wasn't yeah. it? you know, Colin come into the club in eighty. Well, the man had not come to the club into the into the first team coaching role in eighty three. Things have picked up from there, become enormously successful. And you know, we there like, oh, it's not how is it? It's Colin. He's the man. All this like, and you think about if they follow the Liverpool like sort of model, you know, get rid of, get knocked out. A manager goes next in line. The coaching staff mm. comes in carry on being successful or even more successful in Bob Paisley's case when he succeeded Shankly. It was the same thing will happen in Everton now. And so I think people are quite comfortable on that basis. Um, but for lots of different reasons, it didn't work out like that. And I, I still think, you know, when we look at the history of the club in my time, we've we've never recovered from that, you know, in mm. some respect. Things might have panned out differently how we could have tanked for the next three or four years, don't know, do you? Um, but letting letting or allowing how it's going 87 is a bit like, you know, Liverpool getting a DeShankly or Shankly going a 64 and Ferguson leaving United in 94, you know, it, mm. it, 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 you know, it stopped something that yeah. could have yeah, really yeah. developed into a dynasty happening. Yeah, yeah. And Howard was, at the time, the best, probably the best club manager in Europe for me. Mm. Uh, and for some reason, even though there were soundings from you know Sir Philip, you know we do everything we can keep to keep him. We we allowed them to go, and uh, and that is like overriding summer memory of Where's of, of Everton. Like, well, I'm going to give Adam and Dave a little bit longer to uh, to think about theirs. I'm sure Dave's already got one already, but <laughs> I, I, I do realise I've thrown it on you two in particular. But um, my one, which is not really one you'd expect. I mean, I've got loads. Of, we mentioned Muller before coming, you know, and, and and not signing. I remember sitting in front of Sir Philip Carter when he came out to explain that this Brazilian had left the building, you know, and, and not a signed. Laser. Yeah, and a, and a, um, and a, a brown Rolls Royce, if I remember yeah. rightly. And I remember looking out of the window and seeing a load of kids on the back of the Rolls Royce as it was going up. <laughs> <laughs> Road. I know it's terrible, but the the one for me that sticks out, and it's a bit a bit more sort of nearer nearer to modern day, um, was when I joined the club back in 2013 14, and, and we we had the um, the transfer window, and it was all sort of you know getting exciting, and and it was I think it might have been transfer deadline day, I can't remember now, but I think it was yeah, and um, I'd decided before I'd already booked a holiday, you know, before I joined Everton when I was when I was working for Sky, I'd already had this holiday to Dubai booked you know so 
So I had to sort of go, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. So I said, look, I'm going to have to go. It's sort of like five o'clock, six o'clock on, on transfer window day. And, you know, and, and this the club were great. I said, yeah, no problem. You know, so of course we get there. And in the afternoon we had, you know, Lukaku was coming, Gareth Barry was coming, uh, McCarthy was coming and it was, it was mad, you know, and we were, oh, we were really excited, you know. And then, um, so I put a, a, a tweet out as I did then, uh, which said something like busy, 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 you know, so it got the place absolutely mad you know the fans were going mad so then I'm on the way to the airport and I, I ended up getting in I was sitting in the airport lounge and next minute I got a call off Robert Elstone and he said uh, oh, it's, it's not it's not looking good now you know so I said what do you mean he said well Lukaku could be going to West Brom uh, Gareth Barry wasn't quite over the line we didn't know whether we were going to get it over the line and uh, it looks like McCarthy's not going to happen now you know <laughs> and of course I'm now like, devastated in you know in 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 the you know in the airport thinking oh my god you know and it ruined a six-hour flight you know to Dubai <laughs> I was gutted I was sick you know because I'd created this whole you know anticipation and everything you know and uh, I couldn't sleep you know I couldn't it was an overnight flight I couldn't sleep I couldn't you know I couldn't settle and I thought and then when I got we landed in Dubai and I remember putting my phone back on and uh, next minute, all this, all this praise, you know, you've done brilliant, Alan, as if I'd like signed the players, you know. And, uh, and I thought, oh, thank God for that, you know, that it actually happened, you know. And it, it was such a terrible flight that I'll never forget that flight, you know. But, it, but <laughs> thankfully, we got the players that we said we were going to get and it was a good day. What about you, Dave? Oh, Lord, you will. The summer, I've only been right now, I was at this afternoon again, that I remember most acutely was uh, the summer of 1994, Mike Walker's oh, you know, right, only yeah. pre-season schedule. And I could give you any number of stories from that summer because it was absolutely bonkers. Um, there were three pre-season trips organised, one to Sweden, one to Germany, one to Italy. And uh, the Swedish one, it, it was it was genuine madness. How We should have accepted that we were going to have the worst start to a season in the club's history, you know, yeah. so on the back of what happened that summer. Uh, the first flight was to Copenhagen, where we had to get a catamaran across to Sweden. And uh, we'd done that. We landed at Sweden, uh, got the coach up to their hotel, and Mike Walker strides into reception. And he goes, right, lads, out on a training pitch, half an hour, warm down. Uh, Jimmy, Les, get the kit sorted. Jimmy, Les. <laughs> Jimmy and Les are being left in Copenhagen Airport, oh, no. <laughs> trying to sort the kits out, the kit, the kit skips left behind. Anyway, it must have been about uh, an hour later, uh, Les Harm, as you remember, you know, yep. so didn't suffer fools yep. gladly, marched in. Uh, Bright red face. So there's a taxi outside gaffer and I'm not paying for it. Anyway, it just degenerated from there. Ian Snowden got injured very early in the year of the tour yeah. and said to the manager, please send me home. Yeah, I'm going to be in nuisance. I'm going to get bored. No, you're staying here, Snow. You're staying here. You know, so team spirit. So we're thinking, all right, okay, what's going on here? So he did make a nuisance of himself. Yeah. Um, he was bored. So, you know, he used to sit there. I'd be disappointed if not, to be honest. He used yeah. to sit there every day, you know, sort of pestering us, what's going on back home, yeah. what's going on back home. Yeah. I had to see Mike Walker every morning. And his love of the sun, the sun in the sky, not the sun newspaper, yeah. was quite well known. He used to sit there in his orange thong. And I'd always have to sit with me, bring back to the sun, keep me facing the sun so he could get more rays on his face. And Snods was seeing this and was going mad. What's going on here? What's going on here? You know, how to be sorting deals out? He'd be doing this on the other. What, what's he doing? So all that was going on. And then um, Snods got very, very bored one night and ended up, you know, sort of going out for a few beers. And I was uh, in a room with uh, Vic Gibson from the, uh, the Daily Post. Uh -huh. And Vic answered the phone. No idea who this is. You know, so it sounds like someone with a, a speech defect. You know, so I can't understand it. Puts the phone on to me. So who is that? 
It was Snods, and he was clearly several pints or so down the road. <laughs> he, he knew we had a bottle of Bacardi in the room. So uh, he wanted to, you know, so sort of have this you know, bottle down in his room to carry on the party. Uh, as a load of local people down in the room enjoying a party. So I just said, well, okay, yeah, you can have the Bacardi, but we want to join in the party. So <laughs> me and Vic traipsed downstairs, and poor Brett Angel was in bed. He had a virus or something. He was ill, and he was, like, just wanting to get some sleep, and Snods was bouncing around this room. So we didn't have any Coke in the room, so he goes, come on, let's go to the reception and get some Coke. So, like, you know, crocodile fashion, we're marching down the corridor towards the uh, reception. I think Snods was first, then there was Vic, then there was me. And as Snods marked into the reception, uh, Mike Walker sat there with Anders Limpa having a cup of coffee. Mm. <laughs> and I just took one look at Snods and he just heard him scream, Snowden, you're a disgrace. So I like backed against the wall quickly. <laughs> Snods caught absolutely red-handed, just goes, no gaffer. You're a disgrace. <laughs> oh, no. so the start having this big stand-up row in reception. I thought, oh no, what's going on here? Whether it's as a result of that row, but the manager ridiculously agreed to allow the players all to go out for a night at a local nightclub later in the week yeah. as a, a wind-down because they worked so hard. And you can imagine what happened that night. Only about four made it back onto the coach. The rest all disappeared everywhere. <laughs> so that was just Sweden. Germany had its other issues uh, where there was one game. Every time we're playing this place called Fiefelstädter, and it was a four hour journey to play St. Pauli in Hamburg and it was it yeah, Andy yeah. Hinchcliffe coined the phrase dog and duck united yeah. when are we going to have our pre-match meal goes, don't worry that. don't worry we'll stay at a motorway service station so they got a motorway service station and they were not happy with the quality of their food on offer there so they were you know they were moaning and groaning as footballers do we got to St. Pauli Stadium I got myself this cracking big brat for us you know, with all kinds of onions and everything on it Neville, Neville Southall, sorry. Where'd you get that, lad? And I said, well, just down there. He's just going out to warm up. Go and get me one. Get Andy one as well. I said, you're just about to play. Go and get us one, lad. So I did went and got them two. You know, don't to do. Yeah. Like, so I trotted towards the edge of the pitch. You can see Andy was a little bit unsure. But was he, he did, and he took it off me. Neville took it off me, marched down the pitch, put it in the back of his goal, and was taking bites out of it, put it in the back of the goal. Anyway... The match ended. Everton two, St. Pauli one. So, <laughs> so, as you say, uh, you should have really known at that point then of what was season. So was yeah, there was, uh, there was lots and lots of pre-season tours I've been in, but that was the most memorable, for possibly the wrong reasons. But it was, it was a great trip. And only Ian Snowden could make a bad situation worse. Than that. <laughs> but Adam, how can you follow that? Uh, I can't. I, can't. I, I genuinely can't. Are you like, looking I've forward got... to a good summer? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I am. I am looking forward to this summer. To be fair, but. Yeah, I can't follow. I can't follow any of that. <laughs> that, 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 that kind of thing will never happen again now because you know, <laughs> no, football clubs no. are so tightly controlled now. Yeah. But you know that was, it was only twenty years ago. But you know that was when yeah. you know so local press were allowed to travel with the team, and you got very very close, and you know so you got confidences that you didn't betray. I mean, uh, that was just before you arrived, wasn't it? Yes. You, there was only like one press officer at the time, wasn't there? there? Was, yeah. Well, so, there was, yeah. There, I mean, there was no. When I arrived, I think um, who was the, the big guy who used to do the he used to do the photography as well. His name escapes me now, but he was doing the press. Oh, Derek, Johnston. Look, Derek Johnson yeah. used to look after the press. And when I arrived, I was actually the first official press officer yeah. in the Premier League. Yeah. There was no no clubs had an official press officer, you know. Another Everton uh, first. Everton yeah. first. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say, just be thankful, Alan wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Know, that, like, you know? Oh no, I think, um, <laughs> I think <laughs> subsequent times. <laughs> Subsequently, there was a trip to Holland, which uh, will best remain. <laughs> on episode four, probably of the podcast. You know. I, I see a stage play about this panel. <laughs> yeah, 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 I think. Oh, pre-season tours is where yeah. all the action happens, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, anyway, I just one story. Yeah, just go about on. how, yeah. about just while I remember on summer, Lord's Cricket Ground, nineteen eighty-six. What's in the middle section of New Zealand? <laughs> and there's mate picks up a newspaper. 
what we said, poor power. <laughs> like, wow, yeah. yeah. I've signed him. Yeah. You know, he's about 35, you know. Yeah, for 60 grand. And, and, and for 60,000 pounds. Was he 60,000 yeah. yeah. really? What an absolute bargain. And, you know, thinking, how old is he mad? And, yeah. uh, and um, of course, 40 games in the championship in the season, one of the players yeah. of the season. There you go, how wrong, how wrong, how wrong it was, you know. Player. And, and that team... Yeah, yeah. Sort of had a number of those players in, didn't it? You know, the likes of Alan Harper as well. Who, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and the players who, uh, you know, people talk about them being water carriers and everything. But they, in that particular season, they, they made a massive difference. Well, Kevin Richardson, who yeah, you know, eighty-seven was yeah. vital, and then went on to you know win a title with Arsenal. With Arsenal, yeah. At Anfield on the last yeah. day of the season, yeah. in nineteen eighty-nine. Well, if you want to see facts, fact, yeah. Kevin Richardson's won Anfield with five different clubs. Kevin Richardson, yeah. really, yeah. Not oh, bad record, that that's it, not yeah. a bad record. Guys, thanks very much for all your company. I really appreciate it. It's been good fun. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Now, Tony Grant began his Everton career at the age of 12, joining the academy after being spotted on the Sunday League pitches of Liverpool. He went on to make 94 appearances for the club between 93 and 99. He was a classy midfielder. He brought something very different to the Everton side at the time. And he went on to become a coach and is now about to embark on a new venture with Brisbane Roar down under. Ahead of that 20-hour flight to Oz, I sat down across the road from Bramley Moor Dock to reminisce about his time with the Blues. Yeah, I played for the City, like, like most aspiring footballers do. Played for the City team. Play Sunday league, uh, play for your school team, and then you start hoping the scout's going to take you. So you're playing in Sunday league, and you're hoping to see uh, a Sid Benson at, at the um, at one of your games, and hoping to play well. And it gives your dad a little a little nudge. That's what you're hoping. Uh, I think there was a guy called Aspinall. Jim, was it, was it Jim Aspinall? It was an Aspinall. He was the Liverpool, yeah. the Liverpool Sid yeah, Benson. So you'd open one of them guys with there, and anyway, Sid, Sid, come and watch me play. I think I must have been about 12, 13. Next minute, I'm training at Belfield. I think we used to train once a week, evening, in the end zone. Graeme Smith at the time. I think he was the, at the time, he was the academy manager. So then, that's it, that's, that's the start of the journey, before you leave school, and then obviously, you leave school. Then you've got a good idea when you're in the in the last year of school. You've got a real good idea if you're going to get an apprentice, which which I was lucky enough to get, and that was the start of me me journey at Everton. Were you an Evertonian, and you were you were, you, were, you were your family Evertonians, or how did that you know? Yeah, my dad my dad was a big blue. As I say, yeah, my dad's my dad's favourite player was Ray Wilson. Dad was a good amateur player. Back in the days when amateur football in, in, in the city was, or, or in the country, should I say, was was a real good standard. And my dad played for some real good teams. So he was a big blue, lots of stories. So I, I lived up by um, just a place called Sparrow Wall, which is just outside Walton, exactly, and Norris Green, just outside there, over the road, a little pitch called Little Wembley. So growing up, 60-16 train there before Wembley like, that's why it's called Little Wembley so my dad was a big blue so obviously the first game I'm going to is to watch Everton and luckily enough for my era it was the 80s team so just like lots of young lads who support Liverpool now they've gone to watch their team win trophies well in my era it was the 80s team and that was it then full houses great players on the pitch 
done, job done. And when you got into Everton, who were the sort of players that you know when you started to get near and you know the sort of first team picture? Who were the sort of players that were, were, were around then? So once I become an apprentice, uh, I mean, I wasn't near the first team, but we had Peter Beardsley was there at the really? time. Now. Peter Beardsley was a, one of the greatest footballers I'd ever seen. So he was someone as a young, because I was a footballing type of player, he was someone I would look up to straight away. But from the, the 80s era, obviously, Nev, Nev was there. Um, I think when I... And then Which no, could be a good thing, could be a bad well, thing. Well, it was a great thing because <laughs> it, it was a reality check of, hey, if, if you're any good, you've got to have a personality as well. Yeah. So... And if you never had a personality, you wouldn't have survived. You definitely wouldn't have survived in them days. So, Nev was there. Ian Snowden was coming to... Had a lot of injuries, Snowden. So, I think he was coming towards the end. So, they were the types of players who were there when I was a, an apprentice. Peter Beagrees, as I was starting to progress with playing. Yeah, Barry Owens, John Eberle was there. And then, I was getting closer to the first team then. And we signed Big Dunk and all that era, and that's that was really my era then. So you you make your debut? Can you remember your debut? I'm sure you do. My debut, I think, was at Newcastle. I was on the bench. I don't even remember. I think Earl Barrett got sent off. I think I might have been Barry Owen. I can't I can't remember the two. But I think it's them two. And then Joe said, "Go on, <laughs> try and keep holding the ball for us." So we tried. I think we got beat two one, but I think we put a bit of a fight up with nine men. And that was then a week after was my full debut when we were fighting relegation. And I played off front off Brett Angel, which was quite hard, especially because we were a team who were fighting relegation, so we weren't really playing football. So all, all we were worried about was to get three points. And a Andy Hinchcliffe scored the, the free kick. That was that day, and we won 2 1. So that game was just about adrenaline. It took a lot, it took a lot that game. And then sort of moving on to your career, you know, into the Everton team, you established yourself, didn't you, in, the, in that midfield? And, and what was that like? I was just playing well, really was playing well. And then we played Sunderland. And I'd been playing really well. Dictating games from the middle of the park, passing the ball, always on the ball. Every, every, all the players wanted to give me the ball. And they were playing Sunderland, and knowing what I know now as a coach, I know they've definitely earmarked me as soon as he, as soon as he's on it, on him. And Peter, Paul Bracewell was against me that day, right. and just sent a bit for them. Kev, yeah, I've lost his name. Bowley, Kev Ball, oh, Kevin Ball, yeah. who, who yeah. I played with at Burnley later yeah, years, yeah, yeah, yeah. who I've got a huge amount of respect for. But at yeah. that time, I never, uh, and <laughs> I know Kevin really well and he'd let you know you're in a game because I was playing so free I dangled my foot out and someone's gone right through it and I think it was I think it was Paul Bracewell it's gone right through it and it was only weeks and months we didn't realise how bad it was and really that set me back a long way there because I was just playing really well and then sort of just trying to remember the timings. Joe would have gone then, would he? And, no, and that, no, 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 no. That was that was Joe. No, so that would have been around what ninety four, like ninety five. That. Yeah. Which was the, did you play in the uh, the seven one? Yeah. 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 I played in that uh, game. Yeah. Southampton. Southampton. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I mean that was 
that was a great team, wasn't it? In many ways, we actually, had, a great, we actually had some good players. We had like Gary Speed was an outstanding yeah. footballer, like, outstanding man. Everything yeah. about him looked very professional. Nick Barmy, outstanding player. Seen Nick the other week when we played against Scunthorpe. He's, he's still the same as he was then. Just a real good fella, real good player. Graeme Stewart was a good player. Obviously, Andre on the wings was, was probably in a category that only certain few players get into. And we had a good team. Um, I do think the injury to me at that time upset it a little bit. I, I really do. But that was then. And the, and then um, I, I think the sort of the, the last year of Joe, the year before was. I think we we just missed out on Europe. I think uh, yeah. I think yeah. maybe Arsenal or Aston Villa were involved. I think in we the played game. Aston Villa. We last played game. Aston Villa. And I think Arsenal won. And That's right. yeah, and, and I mean, if they if you'd have got Europe yeah. that day, things might have been a heck of a difference might, might have been yeah. yeah of course um it's like everything isn't it it's 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 spending the money when something good's happening on the pitch so at that time if we did get onto europe kept that squad together improved that squad who knows and that, that's the key where every season that goes by even now so yeah things may have been different then who knows and then walter smith come in how different was that walter and archie yeah walter was a um, little bit Stands in the background a little bit, but you knew he was the boss, so we knew he was the boss. And Archie was was the coach, and Archie was a good coach, was a good coach. And if you were trying hard, you were fine. As soon as it looked like you weren't having a go, Archie'd be all over you. And what Archie was good at, he never separated the youngsters from the senior players. If it was a senior not trying to leg, he'd let them know as much as he would a youngster, which. But you'll find in first team football, that's the always a lot of coaches attack the young younger kids because it's easier to attack them. Yeah. But Archie wasn't Archie was didn't matter. This is the session. This is how we expect you, and try and make you the better player. And of course, characters again coming into the club, likes Kevin Campbell, David yeah. Weir, yeah. you know all these players again. You know some good players and some good, yeah. good players to work with. Yeah, when Kev comes, Kev was like a breath of fresh air, wasn't he? He, was, he, he, he could hold the ball up link the play scored some goals for us he's a great guy great round his dressing room in all my time at Everton thinking about it I was there from full time from 16 to nearly 25 and I, I don't ever remember it being an unhappy camp I always remember it being no matter who was there I always remember it being a great place to go in yeah, it was um, it was an interesting play. I mean, I, I remember obviously I'd come into the dressing yeah. room on the odd occasion to try and sort something out press-wise, and the atmosphere was always yeah. a bouncing one, bouncing wasn't it? One, you yeah. know, and there was a lot of there was a lot of good people yeah. and good characters. Well, a lot of the support staff were good, weren't they? As yeah. well, no, yeah, apart yeah. from the football yeah. staff, there was the support like like yourself, likes of the kit men. Yeah, do you know all? Yeah, like, yeah. Like absolutely. going back to like your Les Elms and all yeah, that. Yeah. They're all characters in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it all moulded well perfectly yeah, yeah. at Belfield. As far as leaving Everton was concerned for you, how difficult was that and, and, and how did it come about? I had 18 months of my left, left on my contract, but I wasn't playing and I was wanted to play. I'd had a, not really shown what I was capable of and I wanted to get out and just go and play football. Right? So, so being a scout was always in you. So leaving Everton, yeah, it's a big thing leaving Everton, but I'm not leaving. I'm just going somewhere for another chapter, that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I always seen it, even when I was younger, it was like, no, I'm going to go and play for Man City. 
and I want to be a brilliant player for Man City. Now it never worked. It never worked out. Joe was the manager, and then we got promoted to the Premier League and we got relegated. And was then, that the sort of Ali Benalbia? Yeah, Ali coming, yeah, yeah. but Ali coming under Keegan, right? Under yeah, Kevin exactly. Keegan, yeah. and then I lasted about I don't know four or five months under Keegan, and then I signed for Burnley. Mm. And I remember you signing for Burnley. Yeah. But you did okay there, didn't you, Burnley? Yeah, you, yeah. You did okay. Yeah, hey, I was one of them players. I was a, on my day. If you look at my best games, I was very, very good. But on my day, I could look not great as well because of my stature and how I played the game, and that happens with some players. But no, I, in every club I've gone, I've always had good times. It's a roller coaster, isn't it, as a footballer? Good times and bad times. So, who was the best player you played with at Everton? Andre. Really? Yeah. Easily. In what way, as a midfielder, what what did he give you? I don't An outlet. Know. Football's a simple game. It's a simple game. It's made hard sometimes. But back in the day, lots of us played four four two, or four four one one. But yeah. the other one. Presumably, we'd be playing up there. What, if 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 you were, if you under, if you understand players, so what does Andre? What's Andre good at? Well, he's fast, but he's clever. Andre, he wasn't just fast because we've had loads of fast players who are just fast. So as soon as you got half turn, there's no point in playing it to to someone here when Andre's gave you a great run and he just needs to put the ball over the top and it doesn't even have to be a great ball because of his clever run or his clever timing. The opposition just couldn't live with him, which is why he scored, I don't know, 16 goals in half a season, was it, or three quarters of a season. So by far, he was he was the best player. So there's lots of good players, but he's the best. And the sort of, um, obviously Duncan would have featured heavily in, in your time at Everton with you, wouldn't he? Yeah, we, we, he sort, we sort of grew up together because he was my pal and we had the same, same pals off the pitch. And he's still my pal, pal today, yeah. He's a, he's a great character. He's a bit of an enigma, isn't he, uh, Duncan? You know, people don't quite know who he is. But you know, because I remember, I think in my whole time at Everton, I interviewed him for thirty-six seconds yeah. uh, when he was made captain by Howard. But the great thing about him, and actually, I think sums up his personality, was that he didn't want to speak to the press, but he never spoke to the press. Whereas players would say to me, they don't want to speak to the press, but then we'll go off and do yeah. different things. But one thing about Duncan is his principles are. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, and, and, and he just lived his life like that. He's a very clean, clean guy. Um, back in the day, he had some fallouts with the press, I think, with Scotland, was it? Yeah. Was it yeah. Scotland, was it? Um, so he made the decision, and yeah, he stuck by it. And lots of players were in the paper um, getting accolades. And Duncan, if he did speak to the press, he would have got the same accolades, but because he didn't speak to the press, he made the decision. And you know, he's a good guy. He, He's a deep football thinker, and but because he hasn't spoken to the press, people don't see that side of him. And he analyses football. He, he is almost management material, but people haven't given him the chance to really sit down and listen to his ideas. Uh, maybe that might happen in the future. Who do you knows? think he will be a manager? I think he's got the uh, minerals and the credentials to do it. I really do. I think he, he has. As um, he's, he's easy to talk to. He listens. He's educated. He's clear, and, and he's six foot four, and he's got a presence. And lots of managers don't have no presence, and he's got a presence. So, I think he has got it. It's just, it's just opportunity, isn't it? And when you look at, we we, we often discuss things on Twitter, you know, on social yeah. media. And <laughs> when you look at today's Everton, what what do you, what do you make? Where, where do you think? Let, let's 
Okay, listen, we can look back at last season, yeah, yeah, but yeah. let's look at where we are now yeah. and, and what the future is. Do you think? Well, I, I thought in lots of spells last year, we had, we had, we had a, a terrible couple of months. I don't know how long it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't looking great. It looked like they'd give up the players. And yet, I remember putting a tweet out to myself saying uh, about the manager. Basically, without the cups. So, me knowing what the, what the dressing room's like, motivating players sometimes is key to being a good manager. We had no cups to play for. We were languishing in the midfield of the middle of the of the of the, day of the league table. And I think we had about 12, 13 games to go. And I thought to myself, if you can pick these lads up and motivate them and get them playing somewhere where he wants them to play, and then, hey, he gets my back them all day long. And to be fair, I thought he'd done that and more. I thought for the last eight, nine, whatever games it was, I thought they were outstanding. And I think the manager should take a lot of credit for that because people don't real, realise how hard that would have been. Just mot- I know people say you don't need motivating, but you actually do need to motivate the players. So the reality is they're all human beings, aren't they? And they have human human yeah. reactions and emotions. And yeah, and they got and lots of these modern players have a lot going on off the pitch. Lots of them are involved in all kinds of stuff off the pitch, business wise. I mean, so just motivating them when things aren't going great, and there's nothing really to look forward to. There's no cup cup run because if we'd have had VAR, we'd have still be in the cup, wouldn't we? But we were out the cup, so I thought brilliant. I thought that's brilliant. That now, now that season's over. Now a new season's upon us, and I think most Evertonians want Zuma and Gomez. So the the next season now, that season's forgotten about. So now new we're challenge. all it's a new ch- every season's a new challenge. So I, that's why I always think it's everything so short term because it's almost you, you, you're governed by your transfer window. So we had a good transfer window last year with the left back was very good. So now we've got to go and do it again, especially if we don't get them to. And that becomes a challenge again. But that's football, I suppose. Every team gets the same challenge. That's how it is. And Marcel Brands, I guess, is key as Mar- uh, as Marco Silva. Yeah, I- I'm sure. I'm sure Marco Silva must have like, the players he wants to pick. And I think bringing someone in to run to do that side of the job should just make. Make it easier getting them over the line because I'm sure, um, i.e., Richarlison, I'm sure he would have been one of Marco's players having to work with him. So they probably work really well together, and hopefully, next season he can just do what they've done this year. And just just a, a brief note on we're, we're sitting opposite where Bramley Moor Dock uh, yeah. is and, and, and where our new stadium is. How, cru- how crucial is that, do you think, to the future of Everton? I think. This, this, the city from where I grew up has changed so much for the better and it's, it's just getting better and better and better the city and there's two powerhouses in this city and one of them's got a hell of a ground and one hasn't even though we've got a lot of history in there and a lot of memories in there football moves on and we have got a chance to put a modern great stadium in the middle of this city and it's obviously it's, it's, so, it's so exciting so exciting briefly talk about your coaching career because we worked together at Blackburn Rovers and you were a coach there with Gary Bowyer how much did you enjoy that and also you you seem to be I used to watch you when you were were watching you seem to feel that and and tell me if I'm wrong but the knowledge your knowledge of a player 
is very important to you all around knowledge not just whether he plays well on the pitch but everything about the play you seem to be very deep in thinking about players is that is that what a coach is about these days do you think I think I think obviously every coach is different I always remember going back as a player I always remember when the foreign boys would come to Everton and I don't know it's just my way it's just me as a person would always take it on myself so I remember Slav come and I was or, or even Michael Madar or whoever Peter Dane even further back all them boys Thomas Mara I'd always take it on myself to see if they're okay and whether they want to go for a coffee or whether they want to go for a bite to eat or a drink or whatever and I always took it on myself to make sure they felt happy and I think that's just a scousing you I think that's just yeah. being brought up how you're brought up yeah. so I've always had care of people so then obviously my first job of coaching was under 18 coach apart from doing player coaching when I finished player coaching I was just dipping my toe in there but when I become a full time coach it was under 18s and you got lots of young boys there who need a little bit of help and lots of coaches are easy to criticise and you don't see the full picture you don't so I've always thought of every individually differently and treat them as individuals and try and help them and some can be helped football wise and some can enjoy coming into work knowing the coach is on their side rather than against them and then some of them boys are never going to play football so I have got an interest in welfare of players yeah I remember reading uh, some quotes from Robbie Fowler saying that if he needed an assistant manager anywhere mm. or a coach, he would recommend Tony Grant. And mm. I think he recommended him to himself, didn't he? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're now on the verge of going out to a fantastic yeah. adventure in Australia. How yeah. did that come about? Well, I just signed. I've just left Blackpool as assistant manager. So we went in there and we done a good job there. And obviously, me and Robbie are good friends from since we were ten years old. So we've spoken about football for the last 15 years daily about tactics about players just general just like the normal man in the street talks about football we talk about it so then he wants to be a manager and I always I've always said to him I think he'll be a very good manager because he's got great personal skills he's good with people yeah he's got a great idea of football and and he's forward thinking He he is he is forward thinking and he has ideas where I go oh yeah I never thought of that and we'll run with that we'll try and do something with that now so it's good that we both have different ideas but on the same page um, so obviously he's put a CV about him Brisbane Raw what Robbie is the manager so I'll be going over with him yeah how is that going to be do you think I mean what are you expecting well I think what, Robbie's I, played over there hasn't he's he he's played there yeah. a couple of times it was a while ago wasn't it I think it must have been 10 years ago um, but I don't know what to expect. What I do know is we're trying to create an environment. So we're trying to we want to be successful. So the first thing we want to do is, regardless what country it is, is, is bring our per, not, not so much personality, but bring our experiences no way. our way to Brisbane of what we've done over the last twenty twenty five years in coaching, in football, and how we treat people. And we're going to bring that to Brisbane and hopefully they can run, run with us and we will run with them and uh, try and build like a little family and hopefully we can build something together that um, should be very good, hopefully. 
so when you think back about those and I've seen a picture just recently of yeah. you and Robbie together in a, in a, a team it must have been a schoolboys team oh, right, or something yeah, yeah. and you know you look so young, well you look yeah. older than Robbie Do actually I? yeah, yeah right. uh, you know but <laughs> when you think back about I mean how you know when you look back do you ever yeah. look back and think god I remember those days were you two blues together by the way is, it, is, it, is that fair well, to say or well Rob, Rob, Robbie, Robbie, Robbie was at Liverpool. You see, when I was going to Everton, when I was 12, 13, right. Robbie was going to Liverpool. So uh, he was a blue at the time. Mm. His dad was a blue, but he was training at Liverpool all the time. Every every Tuesday, he was going to Liverpool. I was going to Everton, and you know, when you leave school, it wasn't a matter of oh, I support Everton over there. It was. They'd, they'd, they'd sucked Robbie in and looked after him great Liverpool yeah, yeah. and he was he, he was one of them because looked after him you'd be coming he'd be coming yeah, yeah. And, and he loved them so yeah. why would you you wouldn't you wouldn't get rid of that love there was no need to get rid of that love to come to someone just because you supported them I don't think so in the end again he's a scouser and he chose he chose the other side and obviously worked really well for him I don't know how we've done it but we've managed to get a Liverpool player on the Everton podcast so no, we've that's, done your well. <laughs> that's, that's your fault that's my fault yeah, yeah. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It definitely was my fault, to be fair. What a great character Tony is and always a pleasure to talk to him. And I wish him and Robbie all the very best in Australia. Well, now I remember being at a press conference when a certain Duncan Ferguson sat alongside Ian Durant. It was oddly the midfielder who courted all the media interest at the time as the most well-known of the pair. But of course, Duncan came with a lot of publicity surrounding himself and went on to be idolised at Goodison Park. The last time I did an interview with the big man was 1998, a 36-second piece about becoming Everton captain. It was great to sit down again with him at Finch Farm, where we began talking about his good friend and teammate, the late Gary Speed, and the initiative in his honour regarding a mental health facility at Goodison Park. Absolutely, because obviously I knew Gary. Um, you know, I played him in um, Everton, obviously I played him in Newcastle as well. So it's uh, such a sad thing that happened to him. Um, of course, with the, the club and this initiative, it's a fantastic idea. And uh, obviously we're looking to help a lot of people, especially down in the L4, which is the Everton um, borough. And um, of course, there's a, a lot of poverty and uh, a lot of problems in that area. So um, I think it'll be a great um, facility for people to go and talk. And uh, that's what we're, we're looking to do, to, to make sure that uh, you know, if you've got a problem, not to keep it in and uh, go and speak to somebody. And I think um, that'll be a perfect opportunity for somebody to, to go to the new facility and, uh, you know, unload their problems. The irony of that is for all those people that, like you and I who know Gary, um, that's the sort of lad he was as well. He would be doing this sort of thing, wouldn't he? Yeah, he was a lovely fella, wasn't he? He was a gentleman, um, great guy, um, you know, so sad what happened to him. And uh, you just, it just, just shows you everybody can struggle with, you know, poor mental health. And um, it's such sad when you think about Gary, and um, you know, it was, it's just a sad, such a sad event. But yeah, he'd have been supporting us as well. Um, the Everton in the community—they do tremendous work. I've seen the work with dementia, um, with all kinds of homelessness, you know, all kinds of things. And when you see the people like Karina and Henry, you know, the work they do—it's a fantastic setup, isn't it? There. Well, they are the legends, Everton, aren't they? They too, you know. I mean, they're unbelievable with the work they put in. And for hardly any recognition, really, just for the love of the club and the love of the people. And that's what's special about our club. We do love the people. And um, the, the, when people sort of have these problems, they can go to the, the Blue Base and they can go and, and get help. That's right, because sometimes you don't want to talk to people that are, are close to you. 
So this is this is a, a way to go and talk to maybe you know a, a stranger really, but somebody who's experienced and dealing with the questions and, and your problems that you've got in your life. And because you know at the end of the day we've all been under pressure at one time or another, we've all had stresses in our life, and, uh, and it's nice to go and talk about it. And that's what that's what the message is here. It's okay not to be okay, but you know let's talk about it. Okay, well, let's move on to, to you now. And uh, I, I remember being at the press conference when you and Ian Durant came down from Scotland. I mean, can you remember that far back? Do you remember what it was like coming to Everton? Yeah, it was exciting, really, to be honest. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, and I remember that, um, that orange jacket I had on that was close to being red. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't red, believe me, it wasn't red. No, I can uh, confirm it was orange. It was orange, yeah. Um, but yeah, God, it was uh, such a long time ago now, wasn't it? But um, it does just feel like yesterday sometimes. And uh, no, it was, uh, you know, I'm still here. And Joe Royal, of course, was here at the time. I mean, I know Mike Walker brought you in, but Joe Royal really, where it really started to kick off for you, wasn't it? Yeah, well, big Joe signed me. Uh, obviously, after the Derby game, uh, Mike brought me down in, in uh, uh, Everton on loan, and uh, it was big Joe who, who got the deal across the line. You know, so I, I want to thank him for. Mm. And and um, you, you you were scoring goals against Liverpool very early on. Was that something that sticks out in your memories of Everton? Definitely, yeah. Well, obviously, scoring against the enemy is, uh, is always the ones you remember. Of course, that adheres you to the fans, then, doesn't it? So yeah, you want to you want to score against it, your your enemy. And then I remember my time, you know, with Howard, and I mean that season was a, it was a mad season. It was a difficult season for everybody, but it was also one where you got to know people very very well. The likes of Howard, I know he means a lot to you, doesn't he, Howard? Oh, Howard, my hero, really, Howard. I mean, I only played for him for one season, but of course, uh, you know, it, it goes a lot deeper than that. Um, he made me the captain of the football club. We were in uh, tremendous uh, trouble at the time, you know, facing relegation, really, and it went all the way to the last game of the season, as you know. And it was nerve wracking, to be fair. And uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of money at the club at the time. We didn't have a very strong team, and um, you know, we, we just managed to survive on the last day. But uh, Howard was a you know a mentor of mine. I got to know him, um, you know, as the years went on, yeah. um, a lot. We got a lot, a lot closer. And uh, you know, as I said, he became a real mentor to me. And um, you know, we all miss him, don't we? Uh, we do. Um, leaving Everton, was that difficult for you, going off to Newcastle? Was it a difficult choice to make? It was tough. It was very, very tough at the time. Um, you know, something I didn't want it to happen. Um, but it happened. It's football sometimes, you know what I mean? Uh, things are, are pushed on you, thrust onto you, and uh, you've just got to deal with it. Um, but I enjoyed my time there. It was a good club. Uh, we were good fans. Um, but of course, um, I was desperate to get back, to be honest with you. Mm. I, well, I remember seeing you going out the door. and uh, That night was really strange because I, I'd been told it wasn't happening. You know, there was nothing happening. And I saw you speaking, you know, with Ruth Hullett on the way down. Yeah. So I knew it was going to happen. Of course, the fans went mad. But as you say, you did come back. And uh, I was looking at a picture the other day of that moment when you come out of Park End reception and, and the big crowds were there with the babies and all kinds. You know, what was that? What was that like? It's unbelievable, wasn't it? It's fantastic reception I got, and, and and now these babies are new men. It's incredible <laughs> yeah. when you see the you yeah. see the pictures. You know what I mean? And people company. You know what? The time flies, doesn't it? But um, no, it's a fantastic moment for me to get back to the club and still to be at the club. What was your best goal? I was with David Moyes the other day. He talked about a, a header goal against Manchester United. You scored, mm. um, you know, and, and 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 how the night was and how the fans were that night. Is that does that stick in your memory? It does because it's probably my last um, big goal for the club, if you like. You know what I mean? In a big match, um, and I remember it was uh, it was two thousand and five, uh, and I would scored one previous ten years before it. They won one nil, mm. and it's always nice to get a goal when you win one nil, isn't it? You got the winner. But I remember the atmosphere and that it was fantastic atmosphere. And of course, we're pushing for the Champions League then, so it was a very important result for us. Um, why do you think you've got this love from the fans? You know, obviously your football is one thing, but you, there is something special about the bond between you and the fans. 
Uh, you'd have to ask them, but I mean, obviously, I feel as if I'm, I've been um, not a part of them for a long, long time. I've spent time in the city. Uh, I spent time with them, and um, you know, obviously, that, go, that goes a long way to cement your your your, your uh, relationship with them. That you spend time here, and that's what I've done. Um, I've always been uh, close to them, and of course, uh, you know, they've. It's been a great journey for us all. I mean, as a former press officer, I know how difficult it was with people asking for interviews all the time, and, and you never, ever broke that rule. You stuck to it. But you also did an awful lot of stuff behind the scenes, and I think people get to know that, don't they? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, I wasn't intentionally really not to speak to the press. It's just something that happened, do you know what I mean? Mm. I wasn't really that. I, 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 I don't really want to be that, you know, in the public eye, if you like. You know yeah. I mean? It wasn't something that was in my makeup. It was not because I never liked them, you know what I mean? Just because yeah. I just didn't, I didn't uh, fancy it really. Um, but uh, you know, and and yeah, so something. Great to be back at this club though, and be working in the in the what you've got now. We listen to, to Dominic Calvert Lewin, who talks about how much of an influence you are with him, and I mean, how good is that for you? Yeah, it's good to get recognition. It's nice that the, the players, you know, recognise what you're doing. But of course, the main man who. T- who who's got to take the credit as the manager, isn't it? The manager's the, the man who's, 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 who's the top man. And, uh, you know, and uh, he does incredible work at the club and incredible work for the players. And, of course, I'm I'm there um, helping and uh, helping where I can. And, uh, of course, you know, Dominic's uh, a young player who's uh, got great potential and we're here to help him. Well, Duncan, it's been a great uh, pleasure. I know it's always awkward for you. You, you don't like talking, do you? And it, it just doesn't make you comfortable. No, no, say, I'm just shy, really. I mean, I think most people would tell you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the years, I think you get, you know, people get misread that. Mm. Uh, but I'm just, a, I feel as if I'm quite a shy guy, and you know, but uh, no, that's what I do. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Duncan Ferguson, shy, well, who'd have guessed it? Well, I hope you've enjoyed the last hour or so. And don't forget, if you have any questions about the podcast or any other Everton-related topic, you can catch me on Twitter at at Alan Myers Media. Hope to speak to you soon. And as always, up the toffees. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.